Welcome to the Inspiring You Show. I'm Henry, and this, my friends, is a vibrational experience, a remembering of the truth of who we are. The content is light and coded to assist you on your journey if you wish to receive for your highest good. Okay, so here at Inspiring You, we get asked a lot about going for your dreams in general in life, also in career, how to handle difficult situations at work, signs of burnout, what to do when stressed, signs of gaslighting and what to do, how to also career transition and tools to support in so much more. Back on September 7th, 2021, I did a recording of a podcast series called Live and Learn with former colleague and friend Mike Hazen. Because these episodes have a ton of information so much insight and helpful tools, and also so inspiring. We will be sharing all eight episodes here on the Inspiring You show. And so in the first episode, it's how we got here. And so Mike and I really kind of take apart how we got to where we are. We are both former reality TV executive producers, and we share how we each broke into the entertainment industry, how we were two kids way back when, And we had a dream that we wanted to work in television and how our roads got us to the place where we manifested and how we then met working on the iconic NBC game show, Weakest Link. So you will hear the introduction to Live and Learn. And then it is an incredible conversation. And I'm just so proud of this series. And I just really want more people to hear it because I feel like there is so much there that could support people and inspire people as well. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and please feel free to share and message us because we would love to hear from you. Thanks so much. Welcome to Live and Learn with Henry and Mike. We are former hey. executives. <laughs> Hi there. Hi See, there. I just want to make sure everybody knows that this is not pre-recorded, okay? This we are doing this live. Yes, Mikey, we are. Thank you. Go. <laughs> <laughs> and you're on. Okay. We are former executive producers, colleagues, and we were part of the trailblazing generation that was on the frontier of creating and solidifying reality TV as a genre. You are welcome, everyone. That is true. Welcome. That's right, Henry. You know, for those that don't know, we met in our 20s, you and I, and now after many years apart, after both successfully making a career change, we're coming back together. We've experienced a lot and we're ready to dish, deconstruct, and unpack it all. We're going behind the scenes and pulling back the curtain to share our stories and what we learned along the way. What we're going to do, Henry, for those that don't know, we're going to show you why the real is in the word reality TV and much more. Well, thanks, Mike. Mm-hmm. All right. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to, talk, talk to us, Henry. What's going on today? Uh, today, we are chatting about the work we did on one of our very, very first reality dating shows. That's right. When you say reality dating show, for me, I know, and for you, we think of one show, yes, Average Joe, right? NBC's Average Joe. So do you want to, uh, well, I'll talk. I, so- I, I think you need to tell us what Average Joe is about. <laughs> For those that don't know, um, Average Joe came out in 2003, and it was at the sort of height. The Bachelor had just come on the scene, been out for maybe a season or two, and it was a huge, huge hit. There was a show called Joe Millionaire that came out that was another hit. It had a twist in it. And so Average Joe was was a dating show that basically took kind of both of those. It took a secret twist and that idea of the dating show and combine them into one. And so like The Bachelor, we had a female, this was The Bachelorette version, we had a female who thought she was going on to this dating show to meet 16 eligible bachelors who were all sort of the Prince Charming. And what she didn't know was that those 16, quote, air quote, Prince Charmings were actually just 
average Joe guys. They just look like normal guys that we all sort of know. I know one because I look in the mirror every day at one um, and, and not, but not these model types. And so when she shows up, she's there, she's excited to meet her Prince Charming. And then instead of a limo pulling up with a bunch of good looking hot model types, uh, regular guys pop out of a bus. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I forgot about the bus. The bus. <laughs> the bus. So, um, and then to make things a little bit more crazy, you know, the idea behind it was, will she choose, will, is beauty skin deep, right? Will she choose, um, will, she, will she fall in love with a guy because of his personality? Which if you ask anybody, they all say, of course, looks don't matter, right? We all, we've all heard that before. Personality um, matters more. Yeah, right. And so what happened in the show was about halfway through, as you start eliminate, eliminating guys, um, she starts to really form these connections. And then, as only reality TV producers could do, we brought in a limo full of very good-looking model-type men, and it threw a whole wrench into it. And the show itself was so entertaining. The finale drew over 20 million viewers. I don't know if you remember that, Henry, but it was, oh. a, it was a huge, huge hit. And, um, and because of that they ordered nbc ordered a second season um wait i take that back i take that back my, my timeline's a little off because nbc ordered a second season before the first season aired because they wanted to keep that twist a surprise so when it when the network executives were watching our cuts um they were so excited about it and they thought it was so fantastic that they decided to order another season and so we ended up doing four seasons of the show and uh and really experiencing some incredible incredible moments so um you know henry what uh what job did you have on that show so that was officially my first job as an associate producer and uh i was also in charge of i don't know if you remember this I was in charge of all going on every date with the executive producers and basically just transcribing what was happening in real time and following them around and figuring out story with them. So it was a real, um, it was my first time just kind of being in the driver's seat with executive producers as they figured out what the show was. Cause I don't know if you remember, Mike, we all got on and reality TV was really new at that point. Yeah. And the executive producers hadn't even actually done a reality series like that before. Right. And many of us had never worked on a reality show before. And I think only one person had actually worked on, I think the bachelor our old buddy, Lewis Fenton, Lewis Fenton had done a season on the bachelor. And so he was a big resource for us to figure out, you know, he sort of had the playbook a little bit. Um, and the executive producer, well, you, people can look this up, but it's Andrew Glassman and Stuart Krasnow. And we talked about Stuart in one of our earlier episodes being my mentor and one of your mentors and one of the most incredible people ever. Um, but in Andrew Glassman was sort of new onto the scene, but Andrew had a relationship with somebody who uh, knew The Bachelor and how that show was set up very well. So he was also able to pull from the playbook and we were able to kind of put the thing together. But, um, but Henry, you mentioned something about your job and I want to make sure that it's clear to people who don't really understand. You said you're transcribing the action. What does that literally mean? So I had a computer and everywhere we went, I would listen and basically literally transcribe what was happening, every single detail of the date. So that way all the producers knew in real time what was happening so we could track story in the field and then be able to go at the end of the day, figure out, okay, what are the components that we're going to need for the next day in terms of interview questions or even in scenes what potentially can be cast, if you will, uh, talk about topic wise that they may have been talking about, you know, in terms of like individually, if two guys were talking about how they felt or something, some kind of past memory in terms of dating that maybe then with the gal, if they were going on a date, it could be relevant material for story to bring it up. Gotcha. 
And um, and for those that don't really know, uh, back then we talked about you know this being sort of the beginning of reality TV. So the framework with how these shows are made hadn't really quite been set up. So like I said, we were sort of figuring it out as we go. And one of the parts that hadn't been really figured out was how much time do you film? So this particular show was considered a house reality dating show, which means the entire cast is living on set and we are recording 24-7, basically. We have cameras in the rooms, these robotic cameras that are already there. We have camera crews that are, that are tag teaming 24 hours a day. And so there is a ton of footage. So Henry, your job as transcribing the action of being an associate producer is extremely important because you are there at, on the front lines witnessing everything that's going on. Granted, you didn't work 24 hours a day, but you worked probably 20 hours a day, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it was too were on set almost. I mean, I think we all were on set pretty much all the time. Um, yeah. especially in those, that first season we filmed 31 days straight and, yep. you know, to your point, Mike, it was much more, I feel like it was much more documentary than probably, you know, what we know today in terms of the dating right. reality shows it, we really were following the story and allowing it to unfold as it was in real time. And so part of my job was really to make sure that not only the team in the field understood what was happening, but then also the notes were being sent back to post-production to then inform, you know, the whole post-production team, the editors and the story producers there, you know, what they could be looking for in terms of, you know, the scenes and everything that we shot. Because otherwise, when you're filming a 24-hour house reality show, there is a lot of footage to go through. And so having those field notes can really make the difference in terms of how you put together, you know, an episode and edit. Yeah, and you said something, I, we can't gloss over this. We filmed 31 days straight, which means that we worked 31 days plus, uh, probably more than that because the days leading up to it, without days off. And in in 2003, once again, when before reality shows had sort of established themselves, there was no model for how we're supposed to operate. It was, well, the talent, the, the, the guys, the bachelors are doing stuff 24-7, so we should be following them 24-7, which means we need to be working 24-7. And now for, for us, you know, it was intense. It, it was... It was it was a lot for us to deal with. Now you 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 know we were watching it in sort of true documentary style, but we did set up tent poles, so to speak, or we the way I like to describe it is we build a sandbox and we let everybody play inside that sandbox, and and we'll sometimes throw you know a shovel in there or throw a little you know bucket or something in there to like let them play with to like spice it up a little bit. But for the most part. We're just building the framework and letting them do what they would normally do. The cast is cut off from the outside world. They have no, they have no phones. They had no out magazines. They had no out the connection to the outside world. So they're living in this little bubble or sandbox that we that we let them play in, and it becomes it's a whole intense. world. That's yeah, it's a whole world that's created inside this bubble, and yeah. it is really intense. And like you said, we we do. It's very. I almost felt. I did catering all through college. And then when I got out of college and I almost felt like as, as I was learning the art of reality TV, I almost felt like my days in event, I almost felt like it was like event producing that kind of went in there where, you know, one of the things I think that, you know, it was like a barbecue that we, if you will, like event produced where we brought in all the barbecue items and all that. And then next thing you know, they're cooking and they're talking and that's where it's a free for all where we just provided the items and then it's documentary. They can do what they want with the items and the conversation. Now, speaking of items, uh, there was absolutely alcohol provided for these guys. Um, lots of alcohol, lots of food, lots of just opportunities, fun, you know, there's a pool at the house. There's, you know, anything these guys wanted, we basically provided because we wanted them to be happy and willing to participate. 
and because there is a lot of downtime for them you know the action is really following the girl for the most part so when the girl and a guy are on a date or the girl's on a date with a bunch of a bunch of the guys a group date the guys back at the house are sitting around and you know they can't watch it, tv they don't have phones right. they don't have computers they don't have books i mean there is nothing to do right they got to be entertained and um it was interesting. You know, I, you know, my job, by the way, on the show, I was a young producer. Um, my, my title was, I think my title in the first season was like producers associate or something. I had a weird, I had a weird title. You, you know, you know what? Producer? No, I was not. I wasn't. I, w I was actually, I, I remember now I was actually titled production coordinator because um, Andrew was, was, was able to get me some more money because I actually helped develop the show. I helped come up with a lot with the format of the show and a lot of the dates on how we sort of went through the show, which was for me, a young person at the time we talk about when I worked with, you know, Stuart and he gave me that opportunity to come up with some ideas. He sort of remembered that from my previous time and then connected me with Andrew and allowed me to help develop that show, which was so a wait really, a minute. did you, did you go from doggy dog to working in pre-production on average Joe before everyone started yes. Were you in development yes. on it? I was in development. It was myself, Andrew, and Grant Julian. And it was the three of us in an office at NBC Studios, right across the hall from The Weakest Link in The, in the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And we were in there with, with note cards and, um, and big poster boards and a printer and a computer. And we were basically mapping out what the show was going to be and pitching it to Jeff Zucker at NBC. And um, he was running NBC at the time. And so, yeah, I was involved with that for, gosh, a good six weeks or so uh, before they finally greenlit the show. And we brought everybody on and um, and made our way out to Palm Springs. But, I didn't um, realize that because I was yeah. still on Weakest Slink and we were just finishing up Weakest Slink when I got an interview with Jason Raff. Right. Jason Raff. Jason Furry Raff prawn. Still, yeah, for everybody, Jason Raff is still at NBC and he actually... EP's America's Got Talent. He's been doing it since the beginning of the show. So he, yeah, you'll see him. If you watch that show, you'll see him pop in on stage to talk to the judges. And um, yeah, he's had a really great run on that show. I was the first person that Jason has ever hired. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right on the resume right there. <laughs> right on the resume. <laughs> um, um, and just to just let everybody know. So, you know, we worked with, uh, Stuart and Andrew on from Weakest Link to, well, Andrew wasn't on Weakest Link, but on Average Joe. And so we were at NBC for, what was it? Four or five years. And on yeah. Average Joe, I think it was like two years consecutively that we were on. Just about. I mean, it was a, a really good run. We talk about in that industry, um, being a freelance producer to be able to consecutively you know go from show to show to show without a break remember there's no vacation days there's no um or no paid vacation there's no health care there's no there's none of that so you're if you're employed and you're on a show you're getting paid if the show stops for whatever reason or they're not you know you're not being asked to be on the show you're not getting paid so the fact that we were able to have steady employment for you know, a few years straight was absolutely incredible. And I think I related it to, you know, a rookie football player going to the Super Bowl. Like, you know, it just, you think that's just the way it's always going to be. And it just, it isn't, that was very lucky. We're very blessed and fortunate to have that experience. Absolutely. Um, my first, that was in terms of my experience, all the shows I had worked on ended up being like two year runs. And so later on, when I really got a taste of the gig economy, it was kind of surprising to me. I didn't realize that that's really most people's experience. So I feel grateful as well. So in terms of your role then, how did you transition in terms of development and then being in production? What was your role on set? So, so I've developed a very strong bond with Andrew, the executive producer, and he wanted me to be with him every step of the way because we like i said we had developed a show together and and i and and we just we saw eye to eye we had a lot of this of similar senses of, a sense of humor our our love for pop culture our references he was 10 years older than me but we he was sort of you know we just we were in sync on a lot of things and so andrew wanted me to be there 
every step of the way, every date, every decision that had to be with creative. He wanted me part of that. And I was very, I felt very lucky that I was sort of being taken under his wing that way. Um, and so when I got to the show, when it got to production time, Andrew got me bumped to a coordinator position or coordinator title, I should say, which for those that don't know, in, in production, you have sort of the more creative side, which is producers like Henry, associate producer, segment producer, field producer, executive producer. These are the more creative people. And then you have production management, which is a production coordinator, production manager, a line producer. These are the people who deal with all the real logistics, the scheduling, the payroll, that kind of stuff. And you don't usually have people who do both worlds. So Andrew got me this title of production coordinator, which is in the production side, which is the logistical side. I didn't want to do that, but he was just doing it to get me that extra money because they couldn't give me a producer role yet because I had a title because I hadn't really earned it in, in sort of the ranking system, right? So when I got to set on the staff list, it says Mike Hazen, production coordinator. So the, the line producer starts calling me over and having me do all of these lists. He has me making a call sheet, making a schedule. I've never done this before. I don't even know what it is, but I'm 22, 23 years old at the time. Like, I don't know how to navigate this. I don't know how to tell them, Hey, this isn't my job. Like I know my name says that and that's my title, but this isn't what I'm here to do. And so Andrew was like, what are you doing? Where are you going? Like, why are you not with me? I'm like, they've got me doing this kind of stuff. I had to like, like go around the hotel at like 4 a.m. and drop off the call sheets underneath the, the crew members' doors because everything was like crazy. And we should probably I remember- say we were on location. That was the first time. Yeah. That was the first time for me that I actually got a chance to go on location. And we ended up being in Palm Springs for 31 yeah. days, staying in a hotel. That's right. And, and as a young adult or, you know, early mid 20s for both of us, being away on, on like, get, wait, we're getting paid to be away, to stay in a hotel, and we get our meals paid for, we get per diem, and, like, holy, like, it was incredible. Like, what a, what a really Exciting. cool thing, right? I drove my car out there, packed it up with, like, a suitcase and drove my car to Palm Springs, and I'm like, hey, I'm living here for, you know, a month and a half. Like, how awesome is this? Um, but, but going back to sort of what my role was and, and how I was utilized on that show – very early on, I kind of explained to Andrew, like, look, I don't know what they've got me doing. I don't know why I'm here. So Andrew called him up and was like, hey, don't, he's not your call sheet guy. He's not your schedule maker. He's with me. And a lot of resentment got built up on that set with some of those um, production manager people because they were like, oh, this guy is, you know, I was almost like the golden boy who couldn't be touched or asked to do anything. And they looked at me as like I wasn't a hard worker and I wasn't doing something. And that was something really hard for me to deal with because I felt like I was being, people resented me. And here I was just trying to do as best of a job as I could. And it's like, people didn't quite know the whole story. And I, and I was, I didn't feel like I was in a position that I was strong enough and mature enough to say, Hey, everyone, like, you don't know the real story. You know, let, let me explain to you what's going on. And that was hard for me, Henry. I, I gotta be honest with you. It, it was a really, it, it, it created a lot of divide between me and, and a handful of people that took several years to sort of repair, which I ultimately did. I actually remember that. And I remember, um, I remember the confusion. And I also, I remember you going around with the call sheets and that was part of your job at like two, three in the morning where you just, you know, you just be putting them under people's hotel doors and, um, and then also just juggling everything else you were doing. And I also, that was the first time I really um, got to understand the difference too between production and then the creative side in terms of producing and how, even though we're one team, how each operates essentially differently. And if you're on one track, they do get really, um, you know, like that's their people. Then those mm-hmm. production coordinators are under the production managers, which are under the line producer. And they're very protective about their Territorial. People. Yes, that's, that would be a good word. Whereas, um, I don't know, I feel like in some ways the other side and the producer track is some, somewhat a little bit more fluid, if you will, more flexible in some ways. It is, it is um, I, but I will say that that was 
from that first show of seeing how that there was a divide between production management and the producing team, um, it was something that I noticed all the way through. And I learned from that. And when I got to a position later in my career where I could, you know, be the, the, the showrunner or the executive producer, I always made sure that everyone knew we were a team and there was no us versus them. And I still, you know, to my most recent gig, you know, not that long ago, um, would see that divide and and I would you know try to let everybody know like this is not you don't want this like this is the this is the worst thing that's going to happen is you've got the the logistical people fighting with the creative people and it's like we're all like you said Henry we're all a team we're supposed to be working together and that always starts from the showrunner it always starts from the executive producer who creates that environment and um you know ultimately it, it becomes a situation where the, the line producers are holding on to those purse strings, right? They're holding on to the money and the creative people are trying to get that money and want to spend that money. And um, it becomes a really big struggle and, and everybody else down below starts to feel the sort of consequences or the repercussions of all of that. I do. What's interesting is that something then your experience of having it at 22, that's something then you were able to live and learn as you became, as you rose in the ranks in terms of producing, eventually becoming a showrunner, which creating that and modeling that behavior in terms of we're all one team, it only makes the show better. And because when you actually are able to work with production and brainstorm, like, okay, you know, this is, this is what we want to do. And working with Andrew, what was amazing is that he had really big ideas and he, like, he loved action movies and in his, in his love for action movies, he then wanted to bring that to like our set quite literally. And how do you then on a reality TV budget, how do you make some of these big things happen? And that's where then, you know, working with production and brainstorming, okay, what's the possibilities? And that only right. makes, you know, that only makes the show stronger and then the quality of how it looks. And what were you gonna say? Yeah, no, I was just gonna say your 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 comment about Andrew and his love of action movies is so hilarious because if you watch every season of Average Joe, there's at least in every episode some reference to an action movie, a Michael Bay movie. Like he, it was just it was so funny because we always talked about it. Like he wanted car chases and like um uh you know helicopter shots and and explosions and you know we we had we shared a a love and a for the a hilarious love for the movie top gun and so we we did a beach volleyball scene that was literally with a a kenny Loggins playing with the boys ripoff soundtrack you know like because you couldn't license the real song it'd be too expensive so everything was done like on this budget and um and it was fun i mean it was really fun i have to say like there were so many laughs and wonderful times that went on through that show and um you know I learned so much moving through that show as a just not just a human being but as a as a producer and um but there were also some things that were red flags for me that I saw and witnessed and realized like gosh I don't know if this is right you know I don't know if this is the way things flags? Well, some of the things were just the idea of manipulating these individuals who were on the show. You know, one school of thought is, look, they signed up for this, right? They knew they were getting on a TV show. They knew that they're going to be, you know, on camera and being asked to do things um, that may be uncomfortable for them. But for us, yeah, go ahead. How do you feel about um, when they are coming on? that if the title of it is untitled dating show. Right. That was the thing. They were a little bit misled, right? There was a little bit of, I don't know if it's bait and switch, but um, I don't, you know, Henry, it's really hard because a logical person with common sense would understand if you're going to audition to be on any kind of television dating show, you have to realize like, there's going to be some shenanigans and maybe, maybe you don't, I guess maybe back then you didn't understand what it was. I think now, and now when, when you watch these shows, there's always the character types, the archetypes, right? There's the villain, the troublemaker, the, the good, the, the good girl or the good boy, you know, like there's always the stereotypes, but those are all based or those archetypes characters are based on 
average Joe in, in The Bachelor, in the early real world episodes, you know, on MTV. These were all, these all came from some place that maybe the people who were doing it didn't quite know that that was what they were doing. And, you know, so to, to say like they, you know, when they signed up for it, did they know what they were getting themselves into? I don't know that they did. I don't know if they did either. What I did appreciate about the first Average Joe was the gal that we had, how she would actually stand up and push back. I don't know if you remember that. I remember quite a few times where she said, no, I'm not going to, or no. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And um, yeah, I don't know. Well, you, you know, I, I do remember some of those moments. Her name was Malena, Malena Scanlon, and she was a very, very sweet girl. She, um, uh, you know, when, when the show came on, she, she was fooled. She had, she, her reaction, and it's on camera, was absolutely real. We had a, uh, a makeup room, and we put a camera behind the mirror, if you remember. And so when, when those guys came up out of the bus, she, we paused the show. We, we, we told everyone, okay, that's a cut. Everyone hold. Everyone just sticks around. And then she went into her makeup room where we were rolling cameras and this, this hidden camera. And she freaked out at Stuart and Andrew with a very real reaction about this is not what I signed up for. And Stuart, God bless him, talked her into giving them a chance and talking about what the premise of the show was and, and really letting her know like, hey, this is an experiment and you're part of this and you kind of owe it to yourself to go through the, 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 the show and see what, see what happens. So Stuart had a way, in my opinion, of manipulating or producing situations that felt very re- like just, they felt genuine. And I think that as we moved through the show, I saw, I, I mean, I'll just say, it. I, I saw, I saw Andrew do it almost for sport. It became a it situation kind of like puppeteering. If That's you exactly what it was. We used to, I used to joke and call him Jim Henson because you know, the Muppets and the puppets and he, he got a thrill. And by the way, me being young and not knowing any better and sort of looking up to him as I, he's taking me under his wing. I bought into that also. I, we, we, we started to take it upon ourselves a challenge to see if we could get these guys to say things that we wanted them to say on camera or do things we wanted them to do or become emotional on camera. It was like a game for us within the show. And, you know, looking back on it, it's something that I really felt bad about um, or feel bad about, I should say. And um, I really took that. And I, and I figured that after the, doing four seasons of it, that was enough for me. I never worked on another dating show after. Well, I did one other dating show, but I was not involved in that part of it. I had a completely different role in the show. But um, I made it, I le- like I said, I learned a lot about interviewing people and some of the skills that I needed to continue on my career, but I really tried with all of my heart to be as genuine as I could and not make somebody do something they didn't want to do. Um, because that's just, I needed to sleep. <laughs> I wanted to sleep at night, you know? Absolutely. And I think to that first season, we were all so new and there was a lot of innocence there. And again, like the naiveness, if you will. And as we moved on though, especially our second season, we had the opportunity to go to Hawaii where we were on the big island, which was just extraordinary. We had a hotel right on the beach. We were at Hapuna uh, Resort, this white sand beach, just really spectacular. And I remember there was a moment though, halfway through filming where I felt the change and I can remember, I mean, Andrew was um, on the hammock or near the hammock where um, we had our main girl and I could just, I just felt a shift from season one. And that's when I thought, oh, this is interesting. Um, And I, I did, I did. I also felt like, okay, what is this, you know, what does this really mean? And I felt uncomfortable in moments because at the end of the day, it's like when I'm looking in the mirror, I still have to face myself. And from those experiences, I too learned, you know, in terms of interviewing skills, as well as just producing, putting together um, just, you know, just the event producing, if you will. 
Um, but I also learned moving forward what type of shows I really wanted to be on. And, you know, I ended up going on to Biggest Loser next where it felt more inspirational. And, you know, sometimes you're not always so fortunate in some ways to be choosy, especially when you're a young, when you're a youngster moving up the ranks. Yet I really, really tried to stay within um, just kind of my own integrity lines, if you will, because I realized, you know, I needed to be able to sleep at night and it just, people matter to me and people's feelings matter to me. And I want it to be a beneficial experience, not just, you know, while we're in production, but also like when the show airs, I want them to feel good about themselves, that they participated in it and not feel like shame or embarrassed. And I just remember there was just some moments where it just was heartbreaking where you, you're just, you know, these are real feelings. And what I also, I, I also didn't work on, um, I might've done a pilot, but I wasn't in the capacity that we were in, in terms of average Joe, the dating show, if you will. And it really was because the first couple seasons, I just saw like these people, these are real feelings. And when you put people in a bubble and you're setting up these most extraordinary dates, people form connections. They, they may fall in love. They may, they may say things like, I feel like this person is my soulmate. And then next, you know, you have like all these different guys saying like, she's my soulmate. And it's like, wow, 16 guys are like all saying she's my soulmate and they feel really heart and soul connected. And this experience is being created and you're playing with somebody's heart and real feelings. And if you're bringing up vulnerable material from, you know, just their past experiences of not fitting in or not ever really having like a girlfriend and they're on this opportunity where, you know, they're in this most incredible, I mean, the dates were just amazing <laughs> and, and they're just believing it and they're just falling in love, not only just with the person, but the experience. It's like that letdown effect. And then, you know, possible kind of humiliation in terms of their friends and family. It was, you know, there were some challenging moments where I just kind of had to face what kind of producer I wanted to be. And also the responsibility with content. And I think that for me, I, I really tried to take it seriously in terms of not only the people coming on the show, the cast, but also the crew, and then also the responsibility of the story where, okay, how can we make something that is, you know, potentially beneficial or, or supportive more than not? Yeah. I mean, I echo all the things you said, Henry. And, and one of the, you know, one thing I want to add to that was, you know, as the executive producers knew they needed these, I use air quotes, promo moments, right? They needed moments that were on camera that could help sell the show. They could put them in, in commercials and people would be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I have to watch, I have to watch. And a lot of those things are, I mean, you still see them to this day. It's not, it's, I don't, I don't fault the producers. I don't fault Andrew for any of this. I, I just, it's the way the business system. is. It's the system. And by the way, The Bachelor has made an entire they must two be on decades like what, season 18 by now more than that two decades of of television based on all of these constructs and you know they need to have the guy kiss the girl right so in 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 this situation here you are having a show about average joes and a supermodel and if i'm watching that i'm going well there's no way she's gonna fall in love with any of these guys wait what they kissed well you know how they kissed we got them to kiss you know we and you talk about Milena pushing back. Yeah, she pushed back a lot, but we finally got that kiss. And that was through a lot of hard work. And you could say hard work or you could say manipulation, but we knew the moments that we needed to get to, to for the show to be successful. So it was, it's and fighting. I think that's the challenging part because, you know, in a sense, there are like real moments. There are, if you will, documentary moments. Yet yeah. the genre is for television. Right. And so it's, it's different because it is, and it's prime time. 
yeah. which is then much more in the entertainment aspect of it, which goes into then those moments that you're talking about that you need. And then when you're working with a network, there is expectations. They're paying right. the bill. You know, they're That's the right. parents. They're paying for the kids to be on location and or they're paying for the kids, you know, really expensive college and they're wanting the kids to come home with a degree that they can do something with. Yeah. And so we had to provide because you're literally producing. You're meant as a producer, you are providing that content. And if you don't have the content, then you're not going to have anything to air. And then they're not going to have anything in terms of the programming. And and not only that, Henry, but as the seasons go on, the only thing that happens is those, and, and it becomes successful, is those expectations get higher and higher and higher and more and more and more. And so season two better be better than season one, both both visually and everything you do has to be bigger and better. These network executives, that's all they care about. It's got to be bigger. You got to be, you know, something different. We got to be something different. And we got to be, you know, it's got to be better than the last season, but it's going to be better. It's got to be better. And, you know, like. And also authentic too, though. Yeah, 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 but real, but real, but real, right? Organic. It's got to be organic. But yet we want a submarine, you know, ex you know, blowing up a detonator like on shore, you know, four miles away. Like, what? What? And, you know, so you know, we did four seasons of that. So the pressure on the, on the producers just continues to, to get more and more. And, um, for all of us, the stakes become higher and higher. And it's like, if you don't get those things, it's like, well, last season she kissed one guy. So this season she's got to kiss two guys, right? Next season, she's got to kiss five guys. And, you know, and not only that, but then there's budgets, right? Then they cut the budgets. And so they expect you to do more, you know, for less money and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, regardless of that, I you think know, that from that experience, what I did learn about being a reality TV producer and when they started cutting budgets was how to actually make things work on a shoestring budget. When you have no money, how mm -hmm. can you actually make something look like quality, like it's, you know, film potential in terms of the set? And I think that, you know, Average Joe really taught me that because, you know, Andrew he really did have ex high expectations in terms of what he wanted it to look like. And so, you know, we went from being in Palm Springs, which was amazing. Um, yet we were staying at what hotel did we stay at? It was some like extended stay America or something it was like extended that. Stay it America. was the extended stay. I can't <laughs> we believe I remember from, that. We went from staying at extended stay America, which was nice. A little bit of a different in terms of um, the hotel though, we eventually ended up in. In Hawaii, we ended up staying at this amazing resort where we all had like, you know, rooms facing the ocean. It was incredible. Right. And it was we went from, you know, working 31 days straight in Palm Springs to now all of a sudden, I mean, we got off that. I think we flew together both like there and back, didn't we? Possibly. Yes. I just, yeah, remember, we did. I just remember I had never been to Hawaii. I just remember getting off that plane going. Aloha. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just I remember the feel of the air, the tropical feel. And I was like, this is incredible. And then just that, you know, possibility to film in Hawaii. It was amazing. I mean, I remember we would we would film like three scenes and then we would have lunch and people would be literally snorkeling or in the pool, or we would be going like we would actually be going surfing. It was like a tremendous experience to be able to really balance like work with play. And what I loved about, you know, Stuart and Andrew, they just really, they encouraged us too to participate in um, the activities after it was yeah. done, which I loved. So speaking of which, what was some of your favorite activities on the Average Joe series that we did? Well, certainly the Hawaii, I mean, Hawaii for me is, is such an incredible, you know, experience. Um, season three, we went back to, to Palm Springs and um, it became more personal for me at the, while we were in Hawaii, uh, I was developing a relationship with my current wife um, who was from a distance. And then in Palm Springs for the season three, she ended up coming out and hanging out with me for the whole time. And then season four, we ended up going to Tahiti and she came with me on that too. So um so I, I have great memories. I, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I did. That's okay. Um, so I have some really awesome memories, you know, with my wife in Tahiti. The show itself was like, whatever, whatever. 
Um, but, but my wife and I, or again, at the time it was girlfriend and fiance. Um, but for Hawaii, getting to do some things that I had never done before. I got to fly in a, a helicopter, the blue Hawaii, I think it or blue something. I think it's blue Hawaii. They're like the, the touristy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The touristy helicopters. I was, that was able by to- the way, a super top gun moment. I remember we were like saying lines to each other before you got on. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never, I, again, I never been in a helicopter and here I was, my job was to get in this helicopter because I had dark hair. I looked like I could be this a double for one of the guys. So they were shooting helicopter to helicopter. This is before drones were a thing. So if you were to do any sort of aerial shots, you needed to have a helicopter. And um, so they had one helicopter filming the other helicopter. And I was in that helicopter as the body double for one of the guys. So we had to fly the routes of what the actual date was going to be, where they went down into this, like, it was, I think it's where they filmed Jurassic Park, where we went down into this like cavern and it was incredible. And they were playing the Jurassic Park music and, and it was just, um, and the, I remember the helicopter pilot was a former like air force helicopter pilot. So he was like crazy, but awesome. And um, so that That's was definitely what I love a- about reality TV is those experiences where you're meeting people that you possibly would have never gotten the chance to meet not in a million years and uh, certainly not at age 23 or 24 at the time um, to be able to get to do that. And, you know, that, that helicopter ride that I was on is probably a $1,500 ride, the amount of time I was up there and, and what we were doing and where we were going. And yet here I was getting paid to do it. So that was just such a, uh, an unbelievable experience for me. And a- another experience that I thought was fantastic. And I know you have a, a great story about this was when we went cliff, you know, cliff jumping or cliff diving. Yes, that is for sure um, a great memory for me. And uh, so I'll set it up where the there, how I think it was about 20 feet, 25 feet, 25 feet. I think it was about 25 feet. And so what happens is we were in this part where we had on one side, we had a lifeguard who was giving the green would tell you that, yes, it's okay to go. And, or if it wasn't okay, he would say, you know, red, don't go. And basically it was because the way where we were cliff diving, it was kind of in like a, I guess in like, would you say it's like in a, like a um, cove, a cove, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was like in a, in a, yeah, alcove kind of area. And when the swells would come in, if you were jumping, when it was in the red, the swells could eventually take you in and sweep you into this cliff area. There's no cave area, which would obviously be really dangerous. So anyway, we had watched, um, uh, the main gal, as well as all the bachelors do their cliff diving all day. And I was so excited. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it afterwards. Like, I can't wait. This is going to be so amazing. Fantastic. And so you and I had decided that we were going to do it. And Mike went first. And the, uh, I just remember the lifeguard gave you the thumbs up and you went. And next it was me. And I remember <laughs> walking and all of a sudden I got to the edge and I looked down and I see you going and you got in there and you just pop back up. And next, thing you know, my heart is racing. My hands started sweating and I was so nervous and I just was frozen. And all of a sudden I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And you were yelling me at me down below going, come on, Henry. Woo! Yeah. And the lifeguard across the way was saying, Henry, it's green. Go, go. Hurry up, though. Go, Henry. The, you know, it's about to come in, though. Hurry up. You can go right now. And I was completely frozen in fear. And then next thing you know, the jib operator was, he was putting, to get, putting away the jib. And he said, he was above me. And he said, Henry, look up here. And I remember looking up and he said, Henry, don't think about it. Put one foot in front of the other right now and go. And I listened to him and I went. And all I remember is as I was going down, my I was like running in air as if I was trying to get away from the wall. And then when I went down in the water, I could feel the swells coming in. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then I started like immediately doing fast doggy paddle. Like, okay, 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 okay. And I remember coming up to the surface and like just doggy paddling so fast that 
I went and I don't know if you remember this, but I basically zoomed by you and got there before you did. But it was all because my heart was racing and I was like, oh my God, like I was in so much fear and terror. And then all of a sudden it switched and I went into the adrenaline. And what was remarkable from that experience, what I really lived and learned from after that was, wow, how, how much we can get stuck in fear that that could actually prevent us from experiencing something that is new or possibly enjoyable, or that could be really expansive. And so from, from that show, once a year, I really like to try to do something that is going to potentially not only bring me joy in the experience, but also get me out of my comfort zone. Cause I realized as an adult at that point that I had been so focused on work that I was no longer allowing myself to play. And I was getting really caught in kind of that comfort zone, which then, which is why when I looked down, I was in such fear that it could have been potentially paralyzing, which then I would have had that amazing experience. And afterwards, when we got up, I don't know, I just felt like, I just felt like I went to the Olympics and I won a gold medal in doggy paddling. Well, that, you know, that is what, what you just said at the end there is after you do it, right? It's that buildup of uncertainty, scared, fear, whatever you want to call it. But when you're, when you get through that, there's that sense of euphoria and it's this, I can, I can do it. I can accomplish anything. And, um, to this day as, you know, 42 and a half years old now, and I am every day in my new business and my new endeavor, experiencing new things every day that gives me that sense of, holy crap, you can do this, you know, and because it is scary, it's, it, it may not be jumping off of a cliff, but, you know, making a phone call that, you know, calling somebody out of the blue and trying to, you know, get to know them, you know, cold calling what I do in my business, you have to do that in real estate. And, you know, it's, there, there's that fear of, of what if they say, you know, what if they hang up on me, what if they get mad at me? But what you realize is that it doesn't matter. Like, just go, just keep moving, keep moving forward. It's when you stop is the only time that you fail. And I think that um, had you not looked up at Scott Acosta, that was the jib operator's name, uh, and his memory. assistant, and his assistant was Dan Haugel, uh, who I still talk to to this day. Um, but but had you not looked up at him, who knows? Maybe you never would have gone. You know, maybe me yelling from the from the water, "Come on, Henry!" Like that wasn't enough. You obviously needed a little bit extra push, and you got that. And holy moly, like look what it did for you the rest of your life. So, um, kudos to you for 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 taking the leap. Thank you, quite literally. And thank yeah. you for being my partner in crime and taking those <laughs> leaps. And I'll also say too, you mentioned in terms of your uh, now wife, Margaret, after many years, I feel like we had many conversations while we were in Hawaii regarding the possibility of you dating her. And specifically, I remember coming home on the airplane where you really, do you remember this? We were sitting together talking about yeah. what you were going to do. Absolutely. I remember it. It was, it was, um, it was a moment in my life that it was a, a huge turning point and, and being on that show specifically in Hawaii, I, Margaret and I, we can talk a little bit about this, but Margaret and I had dated previously. And as a young male, I don't think I'm, I'm alone in my, my thought process and maybe females feel the same way too, but you sort of have your life planned out. You sort of feel like, okay, I'm going to roadmap what my journey is going to be. I'm going to do this by this age, this by that age, this by that age. And then boom, I'll, I'll be married with a kid by 30, blah, blah, blah. And that's what I'm going to do. I'll make my first million by this. And you know, everything is going to work out just perfectly. And anyone who's lived more than probably 26 or 30 years learns very quickly that that's not how life works. And I got a crash course in that um, when I started to date Margaret early on, I just said, look, this doesn't go to my plan. Like I I'm supposed to not meet my, the woman of my dreams until I'm 28, because then I'll date for two years. We'll get married. I'll be 30. We'll have our first kid at 32. I'll have my first million in the bank. We'll be all good. So she didn't fit into that plan. But when I went into, when I went to Hawaii, we worked with several really great guys, um, who were like solid dudes. They didn't cheat. They weren't liars. They were honest guys. And I'll name them out right now. Tony Kroll, Louis Fenton, 
Kevin Williams, Grant Julian. All those guys are were unbelievable from my observation, unbelievable husbands, some of them not fathers yet, some of them new fathers. And I watched them and I observed them with, and their wives came to the, to the island. And so I saw them interact and I said to myself, holy moly, I had that with Margaret. And um, it was sort of in those moments that I realized, like, what am I doing? I, I should not be passing this up. So that was, those were our conversations, Henry, was, you know, I need to get I need to go after this girl and make sure that I, I snatch her up. And it doesn't matter how old I am. It doesn't matter what this roadmap was supposed to be. It doesn't matter that it's all at the window because love is so important, at least to me in that moment. And still to this day, it was just I can get all that other stuff later. And um, that was a huge epiphany for me. And, um, and you were someone who sort of cheered me on and were, you know, in my corner to just sort of encourage me to do that. And sure enough, when I got back, called her up and we, you know, took things slow, but the rest is history. And there was, in terms of you calling her, I remember us talking about you making that call and, and there was some nervousness on your part where, do you remember this? hundred percent. You were like, I'm not even sure if she's going to take my call. I... I, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to call her and then I'm going to keep calling her and I'm going to apologize and I'm going to tell her where I am and that I'm ready. And it was just such a, um, I don't know. I just really remember sitting there on the plane going, I could feel it in my heart. And I just thought, wow, like Mikey is like, he knows exactly what he wants. And it, I could just feel that it was going to happen. Well, I, I, I broke her heart. I broke her heart the first time we dated. And when I met her, cause I met her in Mexico on a random trip. I was 23. She was 20. And we, you, you don't meet your spouse that way, right? You don't meet your life partner that way at a, at a, at a random bar in Cabo taking tequila shots. Don't? Like, <laughs> like <laughs> but you do, right? But I, well, I do. Apparently I do. <laughs> apparently I do. So, so that's how we met. And when she came home from Cabo, she actually told her mom, I met the man I'm going to marry. She said that to her mom and, and her mom vouches for that to this day. And, you know, when I, when I came back from Cabo, you know, as, as a 23 year old guy, I'm like, I'm at the next girl I'm going to hook up with, you know, like that's what my mentality was, but, but it, I also it, remember that. <laughs> right. So, so to, to sort of live through those moments and, and have that reckoning of, you know, I was talking to you on the plane of like, I don't know if she's gonna take me back. That's why. Cause I didn't know, I knew I broke her heart and I didn't know she would take me back and, you know, Fortunately, it all worked out. It did. And I feel like from that experience of um, multiple shows of, you know, kind of diving into what love looks like in the dating reality, I feel like I actually learned a lot about dating, about love, about just people's hearts in general from watching people in terms of talking about what they wanted, what happened, and then being on dates. What about you? Yeah, I mean... A certainly it helped me get a, a good perspective, like see things from other points of view, both women and men. But, but to be honest, Henry, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to disparage anybody who was on these shows, but as, as time went on, it became more and more clear to me that a lot of these people were not on the show. <laughs> they weren't there for the right reasons, right? Like, as they say in the bachelor, like they were there, they wanted to get, you know, their 15 minutes, they wanted to be on TV and, 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 and that's okay because, being on television is, is an addictive drug. And, and you could see it with all these people who are on these reality shows. So I'm not sure that I learned that much from about relationships in that way. To be honest, I feel like I learned more about from the crew and the producers and being in that industry and seeing people uh, and really patterning both things that I did like and didn't like um, in relationships um, on those, on those sets of being around these people for, you know, 40 days in a row or however many days in a row. Cause you, as, as we've talked about, you spend a lot of time with these people. Definitely. What I also noticed though, is that how similar people flirt. That's what I noticed in watching, you know, cause basically when you're on set, you're just looking through the camera or the monitors, if you will, watching how people interact. So in some mm -hmm. ways it, it felt like very like kind of like an anthropological like situation where you're watching people interact with one another and then right, the body language. Yeah. You're noting similar behavior. And then once you get to post-production, you can see similarities in how people flirt. And then I started noticing it. I first saw it in post-production on season one 
Then when we went into the field for season two, I started noticing not only while we're filming, but then also within the crew, how people were interacting. And I was like, God, this is so curious and interesting to me that I never really noticed that before. So yeah. that was something that was kind of eye-opening that I learned in that from like producing that experience. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all a very interesting psychological and sociological experiment. I mean, we always would joke about the show behind the scenes, you know, or a show about show behind, what's happening behind the scenes. The, the show. show behind the show would be more entertaining than the show itself. And, you know, I think I find that true on almost every show I had ever worked on is the behind the scenes drama that was going on was always more interesting than than the in front of the camera stuff. And um, each one of those average Joe seasons was no different. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much how much of that we we need to get into or we want to get into, but um, maybe another time. Absolutely. So, OK, um, in terms of anything else that you in terms of taking away, live and learn, inspiring takeaways that you gained from average Joe. I think we talked about this before. I think it's the resourcefulness, you know, the the ability to create something or make something out of nothing. Um, every show, every day on set, there was always something that came up that we had to figure out. We had to problem solve all the time. And so, I'm. I mean, when it comes to to a skill that I pulled away that I learned from from those shows, that was it for sure. Um, but as far as you know, a more a sort of life lesson, I guess. Um, I, I think it was just really trying to, you know, dealing with people, the political, the political or the politics of it all to keep everybody working together, right? This is a team. You have to make sure that you're, you know, encouraging people and people are feeling valued. And, um, and, and that was something that I, I, I learned along the way. I would watch the way some producers treated their crew members and the way others treated their crew members. And it just came, it always came out of the same thing is I never wanted to be a person who, uh, I wanted to earn the respect of, of everybody because I just, you know, I always come from the standpoint of we're all humans and we're all, we're all this, we're on the same planet. We're all, in, you know, homo sapiens and, you know, we should be, treated equally it doesn't matter what our title is or where we're from or any none of that matters we're all equal and um and that that, that show for sure uh taught me take care of your crew always take care of your crew make sure those guys eat first make sure they're happy make sure they're taken care of and 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 if they'll do anything for you and so that was one thing that i learned what i learned was how you can basically produce anywhere. And I'll give you an example. We had a date at night on a working volcano, a slow moving volcano, if you will. A live volcano. A live volcano. And I just thought that was one of the most spectacular things ever that we were at night and a blanket was set down and two people were in conversation and the lava was, I don't remember how far, it wasn't that far away. It and <laughs> it was pretty close and it was extraordinary. And I just thought, wow. And so it really made me realize in terms of resourcefulness, yes. And it, it, it expanded my awareness that anything is possible and that you can actually, um, it's just like, it just, I don't know. It just was so mesmerizing to me that I took away from it that there's nothing that we can't do. If I think I can't do it, then that's going to stop me. And so I took that yes, we can into all my work. And anytime there was an obstacle, especially when I became a showrunner and executive producer, I just took that yes, I can. Everything is figure outable. We can figure mm -hmm. this out. Yes, there is a problem at this moment, but there is a solution somewhere in this. And it made me become so much more open-minded and solution-driven, which I think just helped me all throughout my career and even now. And in terms of um, personal, I would say also just the respect and kindness is what I learned because also on that shoot, 
when we wrapped up, it was really late and the lava had moved and most of the crew was hightailing it um, to get back. And you had to be really careful because there were parts of it that, you know, could crack and you could end up in lava. And so yeah. I don't lava. know, <laughs> quite literally. Like literal lava, like <laughs> literal lava. molten lava, bazillion degrees. Yeah. And so, you know, like I had my computer, like, <laughs> and I was trying to juggle a lot. And Stuart Krasno, one of the executive producers, he waited for me. And he had moments where he actually like, literally was like, I'm here for you, Henry. And he like held my hand walking back because we were in darkness being lit up by moments of lava. And so as we were walking, you know, he just, he just showed me so much kindness. And I just was so low on the totem pole back then but he really cared about every single person on the crew and he could have left, you know, he could have been the first one to leave because once we are wrapped, he doesn't need to wait for the cameras. And most executive producers, not to, to interject here, but most executive producers would do that. They're the first ones gone. They're the last ones on the set and the first one's gone. He, he, he wasn't, he didn't do that. He stuck around. No, for and he like, we were the last two that actually, you know, walked off that volcano area. And some of the way, like he literally was like holding my hand, helping me navigate the terrain. So I'm really grateful for that experience. And yeah, awesome. I mean, I, I have such great fond memories of so many of our adventures on that. So, but I think though, you know what? I think we're ready to wrap it up now, unless you yeah. have anything else you want to add. No, uh, honestly, I, I, I couldn't, I could talk for I, both of us, I know we could talk for hours about this, and there's so many moments, both awesome and awful, throughout throughout the experience. And you know, again, I don't want to be Debbie Downer on it, but um, I I have very fond memories of of Average Joe, and I feel very special. It's one of the highlights of my career for sure, um, being a part of that series. And um, I, uh, if, if anyone wants to see it, it's on NBC. It's, uh, it's actually, it's on NBC.com. If you go to the NBC.com website and you, you, or you just Google average Joe NBC, you'll be able to watch all the old episodes. And I, about a year ago, I went back and watched a couple of the first, the first season. You're getting royalties for that, right? Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, (laughs) I say, we say thank you everyone for listening and uh, join us next week when we uncover more of the real and reality TV And please connect and follow us on social media and please share our podcast. Absolutely. And if you guys have any questions, please, you can reach out to us on the uh, Live and Learn social media sites, Instagram and Facebook at Live and Learn Show. Uh, We will answer all your DMs and and comments if you you send them there. My personal social media is at MikeHazen.Realtor, H-A-Z-A-N, and that's both Instagram and Facebook. And mine is at Instagram, Facebook, at inspiringyou.co, at inspiringyou.co. So here is our disclaimer. This podcast is for educational and self-improvement purposes. So please consult with your health practitioner if you have a medical condition. Thank you, Henry. Always wonderful catching up and reminiscing and, uh, and sharing all of our experiences. So thank you again. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. Yes. Thank you guys. See you next time. Get back.